Welcome to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. I'm glad you found us. My name is Tony Piles, and I'm the pastor here. I pray this recording brings you encouragement and growth in Christ, and we would love for you to join us in person anytime you are in town. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for our current schedule of worship and Bible studies. And may God bring you blessing through what you're about to hear. Thank you. Welcome back. We are in Genesis 41 this morning. Um, These things keep happening that I am not planning. I promise. Where, uh, like last week, Sunday school seemed to flow right into the the service in Mr. Ben's sermon. Uh, There have been a few times we talked about something on Tuesday night Bible study that then shows up on Sunday morning. Like we covered 2 Samuel chapter 5. And Matthew tacks a little piece of 2 Samuel chapter 5 onto the end of a quotation from Micah in the passage we're, we're dealing with this morning in the service. And then together with that, we've got the Magi visiting this morning in Matthew 2. And then we have Joseph uh, interpreting Pharaoh's dreams here in Genesis 41. So scripture has so many interconnections that this is, this is bound to happen. Uh, but it's amazing how the Lord orchestrates things that we don't plan. So I'm, I'm excited about that and excited about what may come to light as we look at these things alongside one another. But Genesis 41, why don't we pray? We'll get into the text. Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the fellowship that we enjoy with one another, for the friendship that we share, for the way that you have united us in Christ and united us together in this congregation. We pray that you would continue to foster that love for one another that teaches us that we are united to Christ, yes, but united to Christ as a part of his church together. We are given a community and a home. We pray that you would be with us as we read and consider and reflect on your word this morning. Give us insight into what you have recorded for us. Help us to understand it. Help us to learn more of you and of ourselves and of our Lord Jesus. We ask these things in his precious name. Amen. All right. Genesis 41. After two whole years... Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke, and he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled. And he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, 
We dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. When we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they quickly brought him out of the pit. When he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream, I was standing on the banks of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one would have known that they had eaten them, for they were still as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing in on one stalk, full and good. Seven ears, withered, thin, and blighted by the east wind, sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them... There will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow it, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt so that the land may not perish through the famine. This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in a second chariot and they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, 
And without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name zaphnath paneah And he gave him in marriage Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all of the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the first Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. The seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Have you ever had a dream so disturbing that it woke you up? Maybe if you haven't, you've slept next to your spouse and you've woken up when they hit you because they've had a dream so disturbing that it woke them up and it was about something you did, right? And you're in trouble for what you did in their dream, right? (laughs) Joseph, not Joseph, sorry, Pharaoh has two dreams that are so disturbing that they wake him up. And that's all the sleep he gets that night, is those two dreams. Now, Pharaoh has in his employ specialists in interpreting dreams and signs and secrets and mysteries. These these are people on his payroll who do these things. They're the best in the world at wisdom and astrology and interpretation And they can't make heads or tails. Now, there's a couple ways we could take that. I think most likely they legitimately can't understand Pharaoh's dream. There is a possibility that they have a sense of what the dream means and they think it's bad news and so they don't want to tell it. That may be the case. But I I think the, the, the tenor of Moses' presentation is that they actually can't make sense. Of Pharaoh's dream. So, so what happens, right? What do you do when you're the most powerful man in the world and you have experts at the top of their field in your cabinet and they can't deal with a problem that's in their field that keeps you awake at night? And that's what we have in this chapter. So what, what stands out to you from, from what we read? Exactly. How this happened, uh, which uh, he had really kind of gave Joseph 
an idea of what was going to happen uh, when he told him, you know, that his father and his brothers would bow down to him and so forth. So it's his providence, right? Yeah. So we see God's providence, which we've already seen, and it continues to extend over this chapter. We, we see it in dreams. We saw it in those dreams that, that Joseph had and then shared with his family. We saw it in responses, reactions to the dream. We see that it includes pagans. And it's not just God brings things about by directing his people and then whatever else happens, happens. How else do we see God's providence in this chapter, in the way this chapter connects to others? I think, well, when the cupbearer talks about Joseph, he doesn't say, hey, there was this guy. He actually says, hey, there was a young Hebrew um, that interpreted our dreams. So that description, you know, I think is um, pointing towards God. And when, you know, it's not just an Egyptian, it's not just somebody else from, you know, somewhere else. It's a Hebrew who interpreted these dreams for us. And was the cupbearer or the baker or both, one of them, I believe, was supposed to bring Joseph up to the Pharaoh, bring him up to Pharaoh once he gets out of prison, right? So I'm just curious if, if it was the baker who was eventually hanged. The cupbearer. That's interesting because the baker takes the fall mm-hmm. for it, and presumably, I mean, I mean the cupbearer is the one that's supposed to bring him up, but the baker, I, I don't know. And on that thinking about God's providence and how it relates to the cupbearer. And I mean, if the cupbearer had remembered at the time he was supposed to, it might not have meant for Joseph what it does for him to be remembered now. So even what seems to be God's absence and a, and a frowning providence as Joseph continues in prison, forgotten is actually part of what God uses to bring him out. Too, it wasn't like it was a week or two. It was over two years that that happened. After two full years. And it's always like that, right? I mean, most of the time when we pray, we don't get what our um, the outcome that we'd like to see. It doesn't. It doesn't come to fruition, if at all, like we wanted to. It certainly doesn't come to fruition in the time frame we often want it to. Um, and a lot of times it doesn't come to fruition the way that we would desire it to. Um, and I think that we see that throughout the Bible, and this is just another example of that. Yeah. But I, I, I think it's wonderful that God don't let things happen the way we want it. Right. But we'd mess it up so bad. I often think of that country song that most of us know, right? Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers. Yeah, so. because, I mean, there's, a, there's an element of that that, you know, reminds me in, um, I forget if it's Romans 1 or 2, where God can give us over to the things that we think will make us happy. It's actually the worst thing that could happen, because in doing that, He gives us the independence we requested, and now you get to manage life with that independence you are cut off. Sometimes as parents, we do that on purpose, right? Like we've got to give our kids the opportunity to experience failure in something so that they learn, so that they grow, right? 
Um, sometimes God does that for us, but I think more often he, he protects us from that. And we, we buck against it because we think that he's keeping something good from us. We're, we're an awful lot like Eve in that regard. I think we very easily believe the lie that we need something God is withholding from us in order to be happy. Weather. Right, it's kind of the obvious one that we always think about that in relation to providence for good or ill, right? Depending on how our crops and our animals are doing, right? But, but weather, weather is encompassed under God's providence. And here, it's not just, is it going to rain today? It's a 14, 15 year cycle that has yet to begin, that is declared beforehand and that is the instrument of bringing the people of God into Egypt so that they will be fed so that they can multiply and so that God can bring them out 400 years later the great nation yeah we've I think I've remarked before this really interesting feature of, of Genesis and Exodus is Pharaoh at the beginning of Exodus, who's the first person to call Israel a people. Because at the end of Genesis, when they go down, it's family of 70 people, right? And lots of livestock and wagons. Good. What else do we see? I think it's interesting to see that there's one word in chapter 14 that shows, I mean, in verse 14. So we know that Joseph has been taken care of in prison and, you know, he does have some type of authority over so it makes it sound like it's that he's got it made but it's still it says they brought him out of the pit so he's still in prison he's still you know in a place that you know you wouldn't you don't want to be and god's still putting there as he's taking care of him but he's you know he comes out he's got to be shaven you know he's got to shave he's got to dress eyes to just be presented well to Pharaoh to go interpret those dreams. So he's still in a, not in a good place other than God's taken care of him. So, um, and that he's brought out of there and then brought to even more uh, prominence than he was before he went into prison. Yeah. Yeah, if we take chapter 39, chapter 40, on their own, I mean, kind of sounds like Joseph's got a sweet deal. I mean, yeah, he's in prison, but he's in prison, he's in charge. And he's in prison, but he's in prison as the warden's favorite and as his right-hand man. But as you mentioned, verse 14 makes it clear that prison's still prison. It's still the pit. There's still a process he's got to go through in order to be made presentable for Pharaoh. He is still very much in irons, we might say. That's certainly our line. Um that the place of such pain and struggle where before they were a, a people, I guess, no, I think they were a people. They were a people uh, in Egypt. And, and so where there was such pain and struggle, the place that they leave is the place where he now reigns. Um, which again is just, it, it just kind of goes back to these um, it's not the way you would have thought. It's not the way you would have planned. It's not any of those sorts of things. It's the way that God brings things about. Um, it's not. I don't think anybody would have signed up to go back there. Um, 
So, and until they're in the wilderness, and then they're all about signing up to go back there. I mean, we might have been slaves, but but we weren't hungry. Right, we had to eat. Yeah. Well, it is interesting reading through Genesis and seeing it and breaking it down. You don't realize how big a part Egypt is in everybody from Abraham to Jesus to the Israelites, whether it's God sending you there to protect you from somebody or sending you there to escape from somebody. Egypt plays a huge part in the history of the Bible itself. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the geography, right, there are two rivers and a wide plain in Mesopotamia, right? The name Mesopotamia means between the rivers. That's where Babylon is. That's where Assyria is. Uh, so major world powers center there. They have tremendous agriculture, powerful militaries. Egypt, all the way up and down the Nile, similarly, Regular, dependable flooding, consistent agriculture, powerful military, uh, an abundance of food. And so those two areas become the centers of competing world powers. And Israel and uh, the land given to Abraham is on this little land bridge between them. I mean, there's a lot of land around them, but they've got the sea on the one side and they've got desert with no water on the other. And they've got this, this coastal plain, and they've got a river. So there's this one stretch you know, between the Mediterranean and the, and the Jordan, essentially, that you can travel from Mesopotamia to Egypt, one direction or the other, where you know you're going to be able to eat. You know you're going to be protected from the desert, where there are cities where you can stop along the way. And so, so much of the history of the people of God is, has to do with their being pulled one direction or the other or being oppressed by one of those nations or the other. I see God's providence really in how impressed Pharaoh is by Joseph. And I mean, he even says, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? And Pharaoh at that time is you know, supposed to be like a god to the Egyptians, the embodiment of a God, and here he is going, can we find anyone like this? And not pointing to himself. And then um, that's, that to me speaks volumes in just how God made his heart receptive to perceive Joseph in the, the best possible light. That's true, right? If this was a, a Netflix or an HBO show, right, how would that go? Somebody would get the answer from Joseph, and then Joseph would get get unalived, right? That's the, the word people are using these days, right? He'd get uh, somebody get rid of him. They'd be like, hey, Pharaoh, I got your answer. Or Pharaoh would be like, I had another dream, and now I know what's going to come. But instead, Joseph is brought in. He's given an audience. He is believed, right? Because that's the other thing that could have happened, is they could hear his interpretation and decide they don't like it and decide that he must be lying. Right? There's, there's several ties with the book of Daniel uh, as Nebuchadnezzar has dreams and there's nobody who can, can interpret them. And there's this back and forth. And at one point he's like, tell me my dream and its interpretation. And the magicians are like, that's ridiculous. No one in the history of the entire world ever 
has made such a ridiculous request. Tell us the dream and we'll give you its interpretation. He's like, no, if I tell you the dream, you're going to make something up to make me happy. And I'll know you're lying. Tell me my dream and its interpretation. And I'll know you're telling the truth. But Pharaoh at this moment doesn't treat Joseph with that level of suspicion. Yeah, and it's interesting. You know, I was going to make that same comment. And now I was just taking one step further to say that, you know, Pharaoh gets that because Joseph tells him that this is not something I'm doing, but the Lord is going to interpret this dream for you. So you get this um, evangelism of sorts, I think, from Joseph to Pharaoh. And that seems to take seed in Pharaoh's heart. It does take seed in Pharaoh's heart. I don't know how deep it goes. Um, but, but it's clear that Pharaoh, A, believes Joseph. And I, I just put myself in, in Joseph's shoes for just a moment and think, I mean, maybe, you know, maybe God spoke this to Joseph and it was, very, it was abundantly clear that this was the interpretation. But like, what happens if I had a bad breakfast or lunch or whatever, right? I mean, this goes very badly for me in a year or two, right? Yeah. If the abundance doesn't start to roll in, <laughs> I'm at the end of my life, right? Because I've effectively lied to Pharaoh in this situation. So, I mean, imagine, maybe he didn't feel any pressure at all. I imagine he did <coughs> while he was waiting for God to bring about the circumstances of the interpretation. Well, and how's Pharaoh going to take it, right? Because Pharaoh's already heard that he told the baker that he would be hanged, and then he was. And he's telling Pharaoh, you're going to have seven years of famine so severe that people are going to forget that they ever had food to eat, right? Like, how's Pharaoh going to take that? And, you know, how's he going to take that eight years into this process? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a trust element. I mean, you know, I guess at some point in time, Pharaoh realizes, okay, well, good years are good years, and I've entrusted um, to this gentleman um, the, the uh, power, uh, delegated the authority to manage the excess. Um, and, you know, it, it wasn't just, I mean, it's one thing to get to the interpretation. It's another thing to tactically execute um, the response. Right, and it be on point to where you still don't get it, right? Because the dream could have been right, the interpretation could have been right, but if he doesn't tactically execute the plan to make sure people don't starve, he probably still does. You gotta wonder what Pharaoh's magicians and sorcerers and wise men are thinking at this point, right? Well, either they're dead or they're gonna figure out how to kill Joseph, <laughs> right? I mean, you've got this nobody, they've got a Drag, drag out of prison and give a decent shave and Pharaoh's making him vice president, right? And, and proclaiming before his chariot as he drives to McDonald's on the other side of Cairo, bow the knee, right? Like yesterday they were in charge and now they're having to, to pay homage to this upstart who was in prison yesterday. Another thing is, um, during the seven years of plenty, there would be a, a desire to, like, let's live it up, let's live lavishly. 
while we have all of this and you know there's always next year's crop there's next year's crop and is there really going to be a famine look how well the land's doing and so Joseph having to be the the one saying no we've got to be disciplined we've got to put this in the storehouses no you can't just you know be reckless with all of this this abundance I would think that would put him in a bad light even during the years of plenty be a tough position. Yeah. Well, I understand what the dream of you use cows and corn because, you know, food and everything else, but to the Egyptians, is it a significance for using cows and corn? Like, you know, they worship whatever they wanted to worship. Or is it just now that God just decided to use cows and corn because of the food aspect of it? But is there some type of significance for, for the Egyptians that he, you know, I know it doesn't say it here, but I don't know, you know, um, historically, would that have meant something you know, different to Pharaoh and the Egyptians by using cows and corn instead of you know, another animal or grain or, or whatever? Corn for sure, I think. Uh, now we think of like sweet corn, uh, but this is probably just a more general word for grain. And for the Egyptians, they supplied food for the world. They grew the staple crops that everybody ate. Uh, as well into the late Roman Empire, Rome was fed by grain grown in Egypt. And they would ship huge shipments of grain back and forth so that Rome could eat, right? It's not that grain didn't grow in other places, but the majority of it was grown there. Uh, I don't know if they also... Uh, pastured flocks. I know they, they despised shepherds, but whether that's specific to one kind of livestock versus another, because they do clearly also have livestock once the plagues start in Exodus. But the, the grain for sure has not just a general significance with food, but a specific tie to the Egyptian economy, you know, how they make their living and how they assert their dominance in the world. Did the Egyptians kind of worship the cattle? Uh, because remember, when the children of Israel came out of Egypt, the first, you know, when Moses was on Mount Sinai, uh, they had made a golden calf. So I, I, somewhere I got the idea that then they must worship cattle in Egypt. Is what I. I do believe one of their gods has a, a bovine form. The, the fact that this was fat cows and then lean cows uh, will affect their uh, view of, of their God, you know, perhaps. Well, there are gods, right? The, the famine is going to come through whatever it is, a failure of the Nile, which they worship, they still venerate, right? You can still travel in Egypt and... They will offer you water from the Nile, which you probably don't want to drink because it's kind of nasty, right? Like that's still a thing. Uh, and, and we see that in the plagues as well, but that's probably tied to how this famine comes about. Um, one of their gods is the sun god with whom Pharaoh is associated, which had a profound influence on crops. And so this is in some measure, although that's not drawn out, in this passage, it's a failure of their gods to protect and provide for them. 
You know, it's interesting that, uh, I mean, like, Pharaoh goes all in. He really pushes the whole stack of chips to the center of the table because, I mean, he really cements it when he gives his daughter in marriage to Joseph, right? That makes it much more difficult to knock somebody off later down the road. Not saying that he couldn't, but, you know, now you've got an emotional tie because it's tied to your daughter. Maybe they don't look at those types of familial relationships the way that we do today, but I, I think about that with me. I mean, you would never do anything to hurt one of your children, including putting up with a spouse you may not like. Um, so that's one thing. You know, I just wanted to throw out there. The other thing is the, uh, I have a question as to, so she was the priest of Om, and that makes, at least on the initial reading, feel uh, that Joseph has engaged arguably a holy man, a righteous man, a good man. I mean, he's giving God the credit for everything that's happened here. He's not acted uh, in an idolatrous way that we can see. But then he's, he's brought into Egyptian culture through this marriage, and she is a priest of own. I don't know what that is, but it makes it feel like there's a blending of the cultures there and a um, maybe a watering down of uh, Joseph's past. I'd be interested as to your thoughts on that. So two things there. One on the first question, right? Um, this bringing Joseph into the household, there's, there's two ways we could view it, right? One is, is he... Um, trying to keep Joseph under his thumb uh, or, and kind of under his control in that sense, or is he trying to align himself with Joseph? That may be likely as well, right? We see with Saul that Saul uh, offers his daughter in marriage to David as a, as a trap for David. So, but I think here it may be that he recognizes something with Joseph. It wants to align himself with Joseph. Not to be disagreeable, but um, it says that he gave him a marriage to Asenoth, now the daughter of Potiphar, priest of Amon. So isn't it somebody else's daughter, Potiphar's daughter? Yeah, yeah I, do think it's, I do think it's somebody else's daughter. I don't think it's necessarily Pharaoh's daughter, but there is this deliberate, arranged marriage that ties Joseph to the Egyptian administration. Right, and she's not a priest, right? Her father is, right? I think that that's the import of the phrase, but that does raise that second question. What about syncretism? What about Joseph's engagement in or adoption of this pagan culture? And that'll come to the fore in a couple of ways later, when his brothers come and they, they don't recognize him. They have no idea who he is. He speaks to them through an interpreter. So he's clearly adopted Egyptian customs, Egyptian language, Egyptian manners of dress. But he does also retain a difference because when he sits down to eat, the Egyptians are served their food. Joseph is served his food. And then his brothers are served their food. So he doesn't 
share a table with Egyptians. There's something about his cultural difference from the Egyptians that he holds on to, that he retains. So how far that goes um, is a bigger question. But clearly, he continues to be one who worships the Lord, who understands the Lord to be in control, who interprets what is happening in light of the Lord's working. Joseph in the circle uh, with Pharaoh, uh, you know, one of the things that you do is you uh, place your enemy in your circle so that you can watch him. You know, and it may be that he was trying to make sure that Joseph carried out what he had said that way too. Yeah, that's, that kind of adds a, a third possibility to what's, what's the motivation? What's going on there? Is he trying to keep Joseph under his thumb? Is he trying to keep a close eye on Joseph and ensure things happen? Uh, which is related to the first, but not altogether the same. Uh, or is he trying to tie his own fortunes to Joseph's? Because Joseph clearly has the favor of the gods. However, Pharaoh understood that. Why does he only take a fifth of the produce? Because unless they're producing five times more than they usually do, that's not going to be enough to sustain them during the famine. It seems like it is. But well, it's a fifth of the total. We don't know how big the yeah. total gets, right? So if, it's a, if, if the crop quadruples, you take a fifth of that, it may be enough in normal circumstances. Like the population may not necessarily, the food population may not necessarily say the same size. And clearly, right, even with that 20% take, the people still have more than enough as well. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a little ways into the famine before they're needing to draw on what's been taken in reserve. What's also amazing is the fact, and to me, uh, is the fact that uh, the grain did not spoil or anything during that seven years when they were storing it up for the use in the next seven years. Now hopefully they were operating on first in, first out, right? Using, eating, eating the oldest grain first. But. <laughs> well, okay, well, you, you're saying then that they use the, the fifth then in the second year, and then they put 40% then in the, back into storage? Is that what you're saying? They're rotating? I don't know, but I'm, I'm hoping that yeah, in that seventh year of the famine, they're not eat, finally getting down to the grain from the first year of the surplus. Well, that, that's what I was getting to. It, 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 God may have miraculously caused it to, to not deteriorate. But it does go to show God's awesomeness, I guess, in that seven years of storing up grain that it was all there, like, like the sand of the sea for everybody to you know, over a 14-year period, right, it was enough for everybody. Oh, and, you know, they may mention this three different times or twice, and the famine was in all the lands, and then all the land came to Pharaoh, and then all the earth. So there was a lot of people, and there was enough for everybody to go to, to feed off of. So that's pretty impressive. Sometimes we think that the global economy is a phenomenon of the last hundred years. And we forget that things like this 
that the entire Mediterranean basin would starve if Egypt had a devastating famine, which happened uh, more than once during the Roman Empire. There, there were such devastating famines in Egypt that people starved as far away as Britain and Germany because the, the food supply across the entire known world was affected. So we've seen God's providence at work all across so many spheres. We've seen his protection of Joseph. Um, we've seen him at work in moments where it seems like he's left Joseph to die. And we've seen that, as, as we've talked about, the Lord is so often doing more than one thing at a time with a complexity that we rarely appreciate, where Joseph's individual fortunes affect the entire world and what's on their kitchen table. Don't we also, we see God's providence also in how Joseph names his sons because he's, he's very clearly pointing to God's work in yeah. the situation. Joseph names his sons in faith but a faith that expects that he'll never see his father's house again, recognizes that the Lord is with him, but expects never to return. All right. Do you think, do you think that Joseph feels trapped? He's in this great position of power. And he's been released from prison, but now he cannot leave. He cannot go back, right? Or That's a good question. I don't know. And the, the narrator doesn't really give us any insight into... Joseph's, right, other than the naming of his sons, which you know, we could take it as he wishes he could go back, or maybe he's glad, and maybe that's the import of the first name. God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house, and has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction, the second name. Compared to, third, yeah. compared to Abraham, compared to Moses, and all these people, you know, this great men that God puts in places to do great things. Joseph is really, really young to be put in that position over all of Egypt. So. Well, and um, you know, to the to the comment about being trapped. At some point in time, you would think logically. You know, now granted, I don't know that I would have picked up on this at thirty years old. I mean, that's that's such a stark difference in the last fourteen years that I I've come during that time. So. Maybe not, but um, at some point in time, you know, as you go down this journey, you realize that life is really not about you, that there is a plan. My prayer is often that I just get to participate in that plan. And for Joseph, I mean, once he got outside of his father's care, presumably at a very young age, he had a very difficult set of circumstances given to him up until this point, right? And so circumstances that he had no vote, he was put into all of these situations. And at some point in time, I would think logically it would be easy to get to, all right, this is the next step. I'm happy with this step. Um, it's better than all the prior steps. But in each of these steps, your provision has been there. It has been consistent. You have been faithful. Uh, I don't know. I think I would probably have a hard time feeling trapped in that set of circumstances, especially knowing what he came out of. You know, I mean, he came out of really dire circumstances. So, you know, anyway. 
my temptation, I think, if I was in a situation like his, would be to think, all right, when is this going to come crashing down? Because clearly it is, right? <laughs> How's that seven years of famine going to go, right? All right, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to, to read it and discuss it and reflect on it together, to hear from the, the wisdom of fellow believers who have, have spent years in your word as we, we question and ponder and search the scriptures together to make sense of Joseph's experience and our own. Lord, we pray that you would continue to foster in us a love for your word, and a, and a joyful practice of reading it together. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the podcast of Faith Presbyterian Church here in Clinton, Louisiana. Check our website, faithchurchclinton.org, for more teaching and for our current schedule of events if you'd like to drop in. We pray this recording has been a blessing to you. Go in peace.